word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. People who follow me and either read my daily journals when I travel or listen to the podcast know that I have an incredible affinity for the African continent. And I am now just uh, three trips in. I hope there are uh, many more in the coming months and years. And um, my next guest represents a country that that I have not yet been to, Zimbabwe, and I'm very excited, hopefully in the, in the let's say, near future to be able to, to go. But this is a, an exciting conversation. I'm looking forward to have it. It's a very important topic. It comes from a woman and an individual that is a fantastic and significant powerhouse uh, across the globe. Most notably, you would have noticed, uh, I hope, for those of you that love TED Talks, just recently off the stage in Vancouver. What an honor. But um, Angie, and I'm going to say your name, Angie. So we practiced off air. So just know anybody listening <laughs> knows that I get an A for effort, I hope. And that's going to be a little bit slower here, but Muri Mi Ruwa. Perfect. You get an A for effort. Actually, A plus. No. <laughs> oh, I just love your energy, Angie. Um, okay, so there's so much to get to. So you are the executive director of CamFed. I want everybody to learn about sort of what CamFed is. You are a product of CamFed, which I think is just a such a wonderful story because we were just saying off air that, and it's no it's no fault of the student. Let's just say in the west in the west. But we don't have the privilege of an education about the African continent beyond what you just see in headlines. And sadly, I'll say this, and it's this is I'm not breaking any news here, but it's either about what we see on National Geographic and sort of the beauty and wonder of Africa, or it's about a a a history that is so difficult to wrap our heads around when it comes to slavery and the way in which um, the entire continent was stripped of resources, most notably human resources. Um, and and yet I read your background and I watch your TED talk and I think, I know, I, I get a sensibility about you. And I love that. And that only comes from the power of travel. So that all that to say is I absolutely encourage people, if you can get to the African continent, just pick pick a country. Angie's going to tell me to go to the south of, of Africa, because <laughs> I haven't been yet, but one of 54. You, you know what I mean? Just sort of throw a dart and go, because it's incredible. The people are amazing, and it just does something to your spirit. So you can tell my excitement, Angie. Uh, let's give a little background first on what CamFed is, and then I want to dive into your story. So, and, um, you know, you, have, you still have the A-plus for effort of my son. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's great. And, uh, yes, I always want to start with, uh, might have been born in Zimbabwe, but Africa is my village. It's a place I go around and, and everything. So, yes, open invitation to Africa. <laughs> now, to Comfort. Comfort is the campaign for female education. This is a movement, a national organization, international movement that looks into education of girls. We get girls into school, we support them to succeed, and we unleash them 
into leadership. And like you rightly said, um, one of the very first girls to be supported by Camford years back. That's over 30 years ago. That's how long I've known Camford. At, at Camford, we believe that every child has a right to education and with the right support and the right resources and working with their communities, we can unleash them. And that's that's what we do in Camford. We work in Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania, and Ghana. It's unbelievable. Let, let's break down some things that I don't want to take for granted that I have working knowledge of just because of my experience. And, and we talked sure. about just my recent visit to um, Southeast Uganda and the Kenyan border and going to schools and these different things. Uh, let's talk about there are a number of issues when it comes to educating females that I think that if the rest of the world knew, they would really sort of sit up and listen, I think, and take note and hopefully participate. Uh, let's talk about school fees, because this is something that is foreign yeah. to those of us that are not in Africa. And, and obviously, this does happen yeah. in other countries. But from a day to day perspective, we take education in the West. You, know, you could you could argue maybe for granted a little bit because it's it's an, it's a right. You live somewhere, you pay taxes, you get to go to school. Um, but for those that have had the chance to see education in real time on the continent, the village, as you call it, I love that, by the way, I'm going to use that. So, but I'll, I'll make sure to attribute it to my new friend, Angie, yeah. uh, talk about school fees and the decision, more importantly, the, the decision from a family unit perspective. And if you have a family unit that has boys and girls, but you only have a certain amount of money. Talk about the decision tree, because I think that is very a very powerful way to speak yeah. about the need and, more importantly, that of girls. Sherrod, and the beauty of this is I, I will not talk about things that I read. <laughs> I'll talk about things no. that I, I personally experienced and that I get to witness, unfortunately, 30 years down the line up to now. So I'll just explain what school fees are. At times it comes called school levies. So this is where you have got schools and in order for schools to run, to have the stationery, um, the learning materials, the grounds and all these that children need, this is charged to parents. So parents contribute to that upkeep. This is okay where parents can afford it, but where there are peasant farmers or subsistence farmers like my family, where we just grew enough, <laughs> to eat and you know when drought comes it means you don't even have enough to yeah, feed your when own drought children. Comes, talk about yeah. exactly talk about saving anything else to go and pay to a school so that your child can become a doctor five years down the line i've always said that that decision is more complex and painful for parents because i witnessed that firsthand with my mom all the time because you're asking parents to make a decision on whether they feed their children today and i mean literally feed their children today or they go and buy an exercise book or a pen. Uh, there are so many cases where you get children who are going for a day or two without a meal. And then when you ask them to give up a meal, you're not asking them to give up breakfast. You're asking them to give two days meals to be able to pay for that school fees and levies. And it's not enough. It takes more than that. And I always want to give the example of um, menstrual products, for example. So one month's supply of menstrual products can be equivalent to 20 meals. So one month. So I want to be clear for the audience. One month of menstrual yeah. products. That's another part of this story that doesn't get enough. Exactly. Uh, I think airtime equates to 20, 20 meals. Twenty for some meals. For something. Yeah. So that's 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 the choice that they're making. So I just want to make sure that we are bringing it home. It's not. It's not like you know the normal sacrifice everybody makes. Say I'm going to prioritize my children's education. It's. You know, how do you sit down with 
my mother, for example, and say to her, this, this is what's going to take. Choose whether you feed your five children today or you buy exercise books for a child. So and historically, this, this weren't, they, weren't they, sorry, Angie, but historically, isn't it also that the deference was to boys? So if we only had so much money and we had boys and girls in our family unit, the boy would get to go to school ahead of the line of their sister, correct? This is where I was going to go to. So let yeah. me explain how that decision is made. It's it's a cruel choice. And I'm calling it a cruel choice because where resources are available, parents don't make that choice. They never have to. And oftentimes it comes to the issue around looking at all the challenges that are available. So the girl has to travel 10 kilometers to and from school, issues around vulnerability, issues around protection, but also issues around opportunities then for her to be able to secure employment immediately after. Is it going to be within the home vicinity or should have to go? So all these um, as a family is trying to make a decision on, we have limited resources, who do we give? And I'm saying this, this is not a choice parents ever have to make because whenever we have come in as an organization and say, would like to support you as a family, we have never had a single incident where the family have said, oh, we'd prefer for you to support our boys, not our girls. Never. And that's why I call it a cruel choice that people have to choose for something so basic and so subsistence. So I, I just wanted to be able to flag that. And I know that at times people want to say, oh, it's culture. No, it's not. It's the culture of poverty as opposed to the poverty of culture. I love it, the culture of poverty. It, it's it's so incredibly true. And one thing you didn't bring up, and I'd be curious as to your perspective on this, but one thing that I have I've experienced in with different programs that are working very hard to create an opening and an opportunity for a young girl to sort of leap forward in her her own capabilities um, is the it, there's no way around it, but the the sad truth of child marriage, yep. and that you know across the continent, if a young girl's not in school. Um, it, it, again, a cruel choice, I'm sure for many, but something that is not shocking to cultures across the continent. Can you speak to that? Sure. Uh, what I think that's very clear is that in a context where girls do not transition from one grade to another or from one form to another, with it is also high rates of child marriage. So I've always said that, you know, when you do not allow a girl to go to school, it's like you have cursed her to child marriage, like basically handed her over on a silver platter to the next option around. So what's left for me to do? And what's left for her to do? Get married and start a family. So it's, it's that most girls are in child marriages because they're out of school. They are not in school. And that's the tragedy of, of, of the continent, but I also think of many other continents as well. That when girls are not in school, you don't know better. You don't get exposed to better. Unfortunately, what I always want to say that I feel at times is, is missed in the discussion around education is my own personal experience. For me, you know, just, just getting the chance to stay in school is powerful. And I don't know how I can, it's, it's, it's powerful because more than the pain of dropping out of school is the pain of exclusion is to know that there is this thing called school. I don't belong, I'm excluded, I'm marginalized. It's painful for children because you, it, it denies you the opportunity to share what you could become, who you can be. There's not even an opportunity to see what's possible and what's out there. 
And that's the pain, the painful part. And I think, you know, for me, I speak for the most marginalized. It's better maybe when you've got access to television or a phone and you can see that there is a world out there. When you are in a community like where I grew up, where all you think is, you know, the, the where the horizon ends is where the world ends. It's it's so painful and it's so handicapping to not allow for children to be exposed to the possibilities that books exposed to you. I loved reading. That's one of the you know privileges I had when I was yeah. growing up. But also even to school, to think differently, to interrogate, to analyze, to question. You don't get that privilege if you haven't gone to school. So I feel that for me, school is more than just, you know, the place you go to, you get exercise books, you write, you pass your exams. It's it's a lease at life. And and part of that, and you touched a little bit on that, and I was unaware of this until my recent visit, but it was incredibly powerful. I I, I spent time in the Busia region um, in southeast Uganda, and I was talking with a woman who heads up, um, I forget, my apologies to her, her position within that government, but she was talking about how one of the struggles for girls is, one, once you get them in a school, and then they become, then they are going through their menstrual cycle, what you see is a significant percentage of young girls who miss school because of their menstrual cycle, because the schools don't have the facilities to be able to support them. And then you talked about sort of that exclusion or it was really the, this psychological impact that the social environment can have on you. And I, again, we take this sadly for granted uh, at no fault of those who, you know, unless you see it and you, you're a part of it, I think it's hard to understand the depth of, of that challenge. But we're not just talking about getting a young girl in school. We're talking about then keeping her in school. And that is yeah. the numbers. When you see that, I've seen some wild numbers of what girls miss in a given school year. It's absolutely incredible. So, you know, 95% of the most marginalized girls who get into school don't complete high school. They don't complete high school. I'll say that again. 95% of the most marginalized girls who enter primary school do not complete. So it means only 5% do because of the myriad of challenges that they face. And one of them, for those who are in adolescence, is menstrual products. You know, I, I remember personally just the anguish and anger, you know, when that time of the month came, you're like, I wish I had an on and off switch. Why, why does this come, you know? And at that time you wish, I wish I was a boy because this extra cost wouldn't come. For such a natural process, to cause so much trauma is not right. You know, and just, just to, to think of it. And I, I was at a boarding school myself. And, and this uh, opened the better resource schools. And that was thanks to Comfort because they paid for me to be able to go to that school. But even at that school, most of the children did not have the menstrual products that they needed. You know, it was not unusual to find somebody using, you know, T-shirts, tearing blankets, using unprocessed cotton, and all of that to be able to go through that week. And in most cases, it just means I don't go for lessons because I'm also afraid of spoiling my dress when I get to school. It was worse so for, for my school because we had beige uniforms. So blood on beige doesn't look good. So, you know, we even have survival techniques in the classroom where when it's that time of the month, you make sure that you've got only like girls, friends sitting behind you. So you, you actually make sure that you stand first and you check on them if it cost is clear before you move. 
So all of that, you know, it's when you grow older, you realize this was unusual. This is not right. But imagine that's how you grow up. That's how you survive. You accept it's the norm. I, I didn't even realize that actually. This is not, menstrual products are not that expensive. I didn't know about duty and taxation issues. My personal experience was that it just didn't work. So at times, I think it's also important for us to look at how policy decisions, how supply decisions also affect naive, innocent girls in the back of beyond. This episode is brought to you by The Happily Company. Their monthly date night subscription box, date box, has been used by thousands of couples to keep their relationships healthy and interesting month after month. Use code HEADROOM50 for 50% off your first date box. Well, and it speaks happened. to the social support yeah. systems as well. Like when I was there, I was there yeah. with water aid. And so you got to understand the power of, of a lack of water for hygiene. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, I, mean, so it's, I mean, right. This is I mean, it's sort of it's it feels a little bit yeah. like a domino effect where, all right, we focus on let's yeah. get the girl in school. Then wait a minute. Now we have to deal with when she's going through puberty in a menstrual cycle and how do we keep her in school and the psychological impact of not, I guess, educating the culture where there's a level of acceptance, because to your point, yeah. it's a natural process. And then, oh, by the way, if we don't have and can practice hygienic um, yeah. means to support healthy growth and development. Well, we're back to square one, or that would be the danger that we're back to square one. Yeah, but it's also, uh, you know, for me, I, and this is not just because I'm biased. I'm, I'm super proud of being African. I'm super proud of just, you know, how girls, young women and their families have met done with what's available. Because I, I tell you that it's amazing how we can take just maybe a month's supply of, you know, pays and make it life transformative for every child, for every community. That's that's the beauty of it. But I also just want to be able to say that it's, this is the value of community engagement. That when you, if you bring in support in a community that's so hungry for opportunity, that's so hungry. I'm not just talking about the girls themselves, I'm talking about the families, the education system, the teachers and everybody. It's how people just rally around making that work. So as much as there's all this gravity of problems and challenges, it's also what's unleashed when that opportunity comes in. And 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 for me right now, you know, we have supported over 6.4 million children as an organization. In this million. context. You just yeah, million. 6.4 million. Million children through school. You know, since we started as an organization, and, you know, I'm a breathing, living testament to that. There are better, more powerful young women out there who have come through the program than me. So I'm just saying that it's it's amazing what comes through. And for me, what pains me most is those that are left behind. Because even at a very personal level, when I got the chance, there were girls that were equally academically gifted, equally needy. When they're limited resources, few get the chance. So when you look at my life and their life, it can, I think you don't need any narrative or what you call it, um, an accompanying narrative to see the difference. It's it's so amazing, the difference in, in opportunity max. So for me, I think all the time, it's looking into that balance around, there's this gross extreme need, but what is unleashed when opportunity is provided is, for me, what I live for, that's what I love Yeah, all of this. To me, uh, Angie, it highlights, a lot of times we will say to ourselves, oh gosh, how can I make a difference being one person? Yes. And what I go to is there, so I was there when school kicked off, 
right? So it's a different start time. And I remember driving in these remote villages and seeing kids with one book, one book. And they held that book like it was the last thing on planet earth. And they had the smile on their face, like the pride that this is their book and they are starting another school year. And it really does. It sounds cliche. It might sound a little corny to people, but every little bit can make a massive difference. Oh, oh yes. Let me give you just one snapshot from my life around books. (laughs) My kids still laugh at me because I take care of my books. You know, this is my book at home. It's all well covered in everything. Thing. And they're like, I can't, because I, I know how important books I still worship books anyway. But also, you know, like one of the things that used to happen when I was, you know, at school is, you know, you would have one book and we're not talking big counter books, excise books, 32 pages. And, and you would cut it in half. So one of them would like, you know, you would use for math and the other one you'd use for English. And then you would start from the other side. It's for your Shona, like which is my local language. And the other part, you're starting for general paper. That's that's how. And you had to know how to write in your book because you don't have many, right? So you write very small handwriting so that the book don't get used up too fast. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how else I can emphasize the value of something as basic as a book. On days, I did not have a pen to write. You know, you had to wait until somebody gives you the, you know, they do their work and they finish and they give you a pen and you have to write very fast before it's time up for the exam. And we're talking about some very basic, very minute items, but it's so transformative. It, it influences the school experience of a child and who they think they are within the community and the power dynamics in the class and all of, and I knew I had to speak nicely to those who used to lend me pens, because if we had an argument outside the class, that day they would write so slowly that I don't get to write. <laughs> so I'm just saying that it's, when we talk about education and the whole culture that's in the classroom and outside, and the difference that resources make and to a child's sense of self, and how they carry that into adulthood, it's it's critical. I, and I've always said, I don't know how to emphasize the value of education. And yes, definitely, as an organization, we look at learning, there's a learning crisis on the continent. We acknowledge it. We own it. We're working on it. But it's more than that. It's, it's the inclusion. It's, it's saying to a child, I hear you. I see you. You deserve, like everybody else, to be amongst your peers. That's the power of opportunity in education. And that's a time something that a lot of people take for granted. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. Angie, can you talk and about And we don't. It's comfort either. <laughs> <laughs> can can you talk about the role? Because again, I think that it's it's easy to sort of look at this is what CAMFED does or any other NGO. Yeah. Right? We sort of this is the core um, skill set that is brought to the table. There's so many more support systems that I find that nonprofits NGOs have to employ, whether they know it in the beginning or not. And one area is in working in collaboration and in partnership with local families, because oh, yeah. like there, I'll give you an example. And I was just it just blew my mind and it, but it makes sense. But I think it also speaks to the challenge. So I was speaking to the head of an NGO in Africa and they were talking about, they were trying to tell me and lay this out and say like, this is the, the, the complexity, I guess, of the issue. So they had worked to get um, chickens for families that would lay eggs, right? These families were struggling to even get one meal a day for their children. And yet they had a source of food and protein in the eggs from the chickens, but they didn't see it as a source of food. They used those eggs and would sell them 
and it, it came down to, wait a minute, what are we doing? We, we actually have to work with the families to understand they have something incredibly valuable right there for their children. And I don't know if, if, if I'm even doing the story justice, but it, it comes to that, you know, like I can hand you a pen because you need it for your test, your exam. But if you and I have different assumptions about what this pen can do, well, you might utilize it in a very different way that is either not as productive as it could be or helpful. And so that's really speaks to that partnership out of respect, understanding local culture and customs and language. I, I like that you use that example. And I'll try and kind of like respond very briefly to that. Uh, I think for us at Comfort, we always talk about community engagement and, and community ownership. It's, it's starting from the place of, uh, you know, communities also want the best for their children. I'm yet to hear from a community that doesn't want their children to become nurses, doctors, politicians, and, and everything. And I tell you, when a community has got their first lawyer, everybody owns the lawyer. Like, this is our lawyer. This is, that's a point of celebration for everybody. Oh, do you know that the president comes from here? Or do you know this legislator comes from here? It's it's celebrated and, and the community lacks that. So for us as an organization, we start from working with the community towards that future rather than in spite of the community. And I want to talk about power, like for example, with the example that you gave, and, and this is from personal experience, but also from experiences around working with communities and engaging with them, is, is power. Is when communities realize their ownership of what you are trying to do, it's, it's a different ballgame. So uh, I, I've heard a lot of communities worry about the donor's money, the donor's edu you know, chicken, the donor's kettle. What will the donor say? Because as far as they are concerned, it's about accountability and compliance to the person that gave the money. It's not accountability and compliance to their own aspirations. It's coming from a place we are doing it for the donor, as opposed to a donor or a funder, but as opposed to we are doing it for the children, for our children, for our future. It brings a whole different dimension and energy to the room. Where this is our chicken, right? How are we going to use our chicken to bring the future that we want together? And so for us as an organization, that has really been a game changer for Comfort. I'll tell you, so for us, we always say, okay, what is it that Comfort will bring in? So for example, the school fees. But Comfort school fees is not going to wake up the child to go to school every morning. It's not going to provide the child with a school meal. School fees is not food. So who is going to provide the school meal? Who is going to take care of the issues around toilets and all these the children need? Who is going to make sure that the children are safe? Who is going to make sure that the children are engaged? So all of that, it is about partnership. It's about recognizing that communities might not have the money for the fees, but they definitely have ideas and initiatives around what they do. So as an organization, there are all these school feeding initiatives in schools that we work with. And I tell you, this school feeding initiative, we don't drive trucks of food to those communities. This is food that is provided by the community, cooked by the mothers and fathers in the community for their children. And they feed their children because for them, it's not their actual biological children. No, it's everybody because for us, and with the communities, we believe that the only difference between your child and that child with an orphan is that you're still alive. So we need to set a standard around how children are taken care of in this community. So for as long as it's school feeding initiative, we are feeding our children. So there is no, this is the mother or this is. So I'm just saying that for us as an organization, it's been amazing 
what is unleashed when it is about what do you want for your children? What do you not have? Where can we come in? Because it's, you know, contrary to most cases where, you know, somebody would receive a call, so hello, your children, your child is not going to school. For us, they'll tell you that, oh, you know, this child did not turn up to school for two days and we came together, a group of mothers or a group of fathers, and we followed up and we established what was going on. And yes, there was this person was sick at home, so we've done this, or oh, the child did not have a birth certificate, so we took the child to the register. So there is that community ownership and initiative, because it's not necessarily comforts money that's important. It's the future that we are co-creating with you. And we are partners invited by the community to come and support them. I hope the audience understands what, what Angie was just saying and, and laying out so beautifully, which is you have, an, you have an option, I guess is maybe an easy way to say. You have an option as an NGO to, in essence, just hand over a resource. Or you can do something different and more long-term and, and with sustainability in mind, which is to say, what if we don't just hand it over? What if we engage in a process? It's around the journey, it's the process, so that one, you're honoring the parents and the community members, right? I mean, I, look, I don't, it's not like a badge of honor, it's an incredible, and I, I, I it was a privilege, um, and I take it very seriously, but you know, I was at a refugee camp for a week in Northwest Uganda, I was there on distribution day right? One Thursday a month. And to watch that and to try to maintain a, for, for the people there in line, a sense of dignity, right? It's an yeah. incredibly powerful thing to be just in the same physical space and see that. And I'm not saying that that's what you're talking about. But what I'm saying is there's an incredible power in the way in which you lay that out to say, wow, if we can support it so that it's the mothers and fathers that are making the food that we're helping to support, but they're a part of that process, you're not stripping yeah. them of their dignity. And that's yeah. incredibly powerful because we need them to be a part of it so that maybe they can, we can start to push back against child marriage. We can start to understand what resources do we need for girls to be able to go through and traverse puberty in a way where they're not leaving school. Um, talk to me, Angie, about, and I don't want to say that you represent the, the continent or the village, as you say, of Africa in this way, but I do think you're an incredible ambassador and voice uh, for a progressive um, talented continent like Africa is to say, you know, when you're standing on the TED stage, which people all over the world would just absolutely die to be a part of, right? It's an incredibly powerful platform for people to share. Um, what's going through your mind right before you go on stage? Is it, is it, is it Angie, who is the executive director of CAMFED? Is it the young Angie that is crossing her fingers, hoping that she can get her school fees paid by CAMFED. I would imagine it was much more than the 15 to 18 minutes you were about to fill on the grand stage in Vancouver. Talk to me about the sense of responsibility, maybe the personal pride as a woman, as a member, um, representing, an, representing an entire continent, right? Um, and knowing that each word that you lay out and the sequence in which you do it can have a profound effect on the young people that you and CAMFED and others are trying to impact across Africa? Well, um, well, I'm, I'm now CEO for CAMFED, right? And that's, that's um, a long road to come to, but I have never perceived it as a personal achievement, you know? Because I, I consider myself very fortunate to have gotten the opportunities that I got when I got them. Because like I say to you, when I left primary school and Comfort, um, you know, supported me to go to secondary school, it was my community that chose me among so many girls who also deserved the same chance. So I, I owe 
that community from, from the word go. And it could have been just my community in Mudawarima, that's the place that did that selection, but it could as well have been the whole continent. Just, just saying, okay, Angie, we're gonna give you this chance and this opportunity. And I, I've never forgotten that. I, I remember that every single moment of my life. So before I got on stage at, in Vancouver, I'll tell you like what I was thinking about. So <laughs> the Comfort uh, Association, we've got a Comfort Association. This is an alumni network of young women that we supported through Scuba Comfort. We, we started that some 25 years ago. So it's our 25th anniversary. When we started that network, we were 400 of us. By that time, we had been supported through Scuba Comfort. And I'm sharing this because that's, that will always be my reference point and my anchor. We, we started the network because we had realized that we had gotten an opportunity that many girls had not gotten by that time. And as much as we were not where we wanted to be, we had come a long way. And, and we made a commitment that day to say, how do we help the other girls that we'd left behind? How do we help the next generation to be able to do it better, faster, and you know, in this generation, more than us, how do we ensure that, you know, any portal or any barrier that we face, they're not facing, we are helping them with that. But also at the same time, how do we deliberately choose to, to role model what's possible as we go forward, as we build our future together, how do we draw on each other? So you asked me what was going through my head at that time. It was, you know, we, we love singing and dancing in the Comfort Association. So all the time I kind of thinking about, <laughs> oh, you know, that, you know, a quarter of a million, because we are now, you know, a quarter of a million members across the continent. So I'm thinking there is a quarter of a million of my sisters singing, dancing, and cheering me on. So I might be in a room in Vancouver with everybody else, but I'm just thinking, you know, what would we be saying together if we were in this room? <laughs> I am just but but a mouthpiece. And I tell you, I can think, oh yeah, I think that person could have said it better. But I think, okay, fine, this this is me. This is I, I'm given this opportunity. So how do I represent who we are, who we can become, the possibilities that can be unleashed? But most importantly, that you know, we're just warming up. I believe there's more to Africa than Angie, than you know, girls who are out of school and all of that. I think there is there's a lot more that the world could still see, you know. I love it. I love ju just warming up. Uh, I encourage people to check out Angie's TED Talk. Uh, I believe I have the title correct here. Education. It's like getting your life back. Um, what a, what a powerful TED Talk that you can find. Just go to the TED website. You can also learn more about CamFed at camfed.org. That's C-A-M-F-E-D. Uh, Angie, what a, what a pleasure. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, hail you as the queen of Zimbabwe. Uh, oh, that's a huge hat. I know, right? No, you, you, you're I'll wait for all the women in Zoom. <laughs> uh, incredibly powerful in what you're doing. And I'm so to, I'm so proud to just play even in the smallest of parts to share a little bit of your story. You've done some fantastic media where more and more people get to learn about your journey, that of CamFed and the ways in which people can participate. Uh, any other place that they should go to learn more and or to help support the cause? Uh, the best place, like you said, is www.comfort.org. You'll see that there is more out there than just Angie. But, you know, I just want to be able to say, you know, when you educate a girl, everything changes. It's not just a cliche. It's it's real. Try it. What do you have to lose?
it's powerful and we're a global economy and we should care about one another. And I think it's uh, what you're doing is obviously working with a quarter of a million members uh, and helping over six million uh, young people throughout the history of CAMFED. Uh, incredibly well done by you and your entire uh, what sounds like very fun and vibrant team over at CAMFED. Uh, we want to thank Angie, and I'm going to say it one more time, Muri, Muri, me, Rua. You get to keep your ace title. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> My teacher says I did okay. You did well. Angie, what a pleasure. Continued success. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.